Haggai chapter 2. If, uh, if you don't remember where Haggai is in your Bibles, remember it's in between Zephaniah and Zechariah. That should be easier. If you haven't spent a lot of time in the book of Haggai, you're like many people. I was spending some time with some good Christian people yesterday talking about what I was going to preach today, and they asked what book, and I said Haggai, and they said, yeah, but what book of the Bible? They heard that the sermon was about to be fire. They called it in. And the Lord's going to humble me. All right. (laughs) Guys, my sermon this morning has four points. Four points. Uh, But those four points can be summarized in a sentence. Be strong, keep working, and do not be afraid because the Lord is with you and He is faithful. Be strong, keep working, actually, and do not be afraid for the Lord is faithful and He is with you. Now, I'm going to kind of play with these points. It's be strong, keep working, do not be afraid, the Lord is faithful and He is with us. But I'm going to, I'm going to put the, the point about not being afraid at the end of the sermon, and you'll see why when I get there. For now, brothers and sisters, let's read the text. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the twenty-first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? If you remember... From our last two weeks together in chapter 1, the first prophecy that the Lord gave to His people was a prophecy of rebuke. But this next prophecy from the book of Haggai in chapter 2 is a prophecy that's meant to serve as an encouragement. You see that in verse 4. It says, be strong, be strong, be strong. Talking to Zerubbabel, the leader, be strong. Talking to Joshua, son of Jehozadak. The line of the high priest, be strong. Talking to the people of the land, be strong. You see from verse 1 that this prophecy of encouragement 
comes about a month after the first prophecy of rebuke. So if you go back to chapter 1 and you look at verse 1, it says, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, and then as you read chapter 1 of chapter 2, it says, in the seventh month. So about a month has passed since the first prophecy of rebuke, and now the Lord is here giving a prophecy to encourage. Does, does that time frame sound about right to you? About a month? You know, kind of a month into the labor, it seems like the people kind of need a little, a little curt encouragement, a little slap on the back, a little, a little pep talk. When the word of the Lord first came to the people, and when he called them to action, to getting to work and rebuilding the temple, the people listened. Uniquely in the Old Testament, the people obeyed. And they responded in obedience. They got to work. It was exciting. There was probably electricity in the air. Everyone was charged up, ready to go, ready to do their part and contribute to the work that the Lord had called them to. The painters were painting. The loggers were cutting. The moms were taking care of the kids with one hand and working on tapestry with the other hand. Have you ever been in that kind of environment before? where it seems like God is really moving and everyone in the community really seems like they're coming together. Everyone's throwing their time, talent, and treasure in the community pot and everyone's locking arms to really get this job done. It's a really great feeling. I really feel like I've experienced that in the life of this church. Unfortunately, that fever pitch is kind of hard to maintain, right? the excitement begins to wear off. The reality of the difficulty of the work begins to set in. The adrenaline begins to fade. And after a surprisingly short amount of time, you begin to forget the thing that motivated you and moved you to action in the first place. You know, it gets harder to believe in the work that God has called you to when your bones begin to ache when you don't get as much sleep, when your mind starts playing tricks on you, you start considering the amount of work you're doing to contribute, and you start looking at other people, and you say, why, why does Bill not have to do as much as I have to do? Why, why does Jenny not have to give as much as I have to give? To be honest with you, I think some of us have experienced this kind of lag, lag in the life of Sixth Avenue, in the life of this church. You know, every person who has joined this church in the last year, more or less, has joined this church partnering with us, really feeling like the Lord was doing something here. Really feeling like the Lord was doing something special and significant in the life of this church. We felt like the Lord was calling us to the labor of rebuilding this church for the glory of His name and for the good of His people. And so we joyfully locked arms and we promise to love each other and serve each other and to give sacrificially to count the cost in order to do the work that the Lord was calling us to in the life of this church. And I think we would all say that it's been hard, but it's been good, right? It, it's, it's hard, but it's good. And we would probably say, like, even in the beginning, it was really, really, really hard, but it was so good that it didn't seem as hard. But as time has worn on, perhaps our encouragement has faded a little bit. Maybe we felt strong for the first little while, but now we're beginning to feel weak. 
the work is really beginning to wear on us. Life in a tiny, weird church is hard. And we're a tiny, weird church. It's probably harder than you thought it was going to be. If you feel that way this morning, I want you to know that the, the Lord has a word for you from this text. I certainly know that the Lord has a word for me from this text. As the Israelites began to lag in their work, the Lord spoke to them in order to empower them and to encourage them in the work that he had called them to. So if you're beginning to feel exhausted in this church or in your marriage or with your kids or in your career or in your battle for sanctification, I want you to know that the Lord has a word for you this morning, a word of encouragement to be strong. Now, if you want to know in this context what what might have been discouraging to the people, all you have to do is look at verse 3. It says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? Well, how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? This is the Lord recognizing that there are some people who have returned from the exile, who were there watching this temple being rebuilt, who were probably alive when the first temple was built. And they remember how glorious it was. They remember the massive pillars. They remember the cedar and the oak of Lebanon. They remember the gold overlaying all the inner parts of the walls. They remember the extravagant inscriptions all over every part. I mean, they remember this temple was glorious. It was spectacular. And now as they come back into the land and they're trying to rebuild their lives and they're trying to rebuild the temple, it feels like a DIY project. They don't have half the money They don't have half the resources. They don't have half the laborers. Compared to the older temple, this temple looks like it's not going to be anything. And the people are devastated. They feel hopeless. You know, it's hard to do a job that feels hopeless. Imagine a middle-aged man, 45, maybe 50, One day he looks in the mirror while he's getting ready for work and he sees his gut poking out. And then he looks down and he realizes he can't see his toes. And he realizes he hasn't seen his toes in a while. He recognizes how out of shape he is and so he resolves in that moment he's going to get to work. He's going to get back in shape. And so he does. He gets up and he starts doing push-ups and sit-ups first thing in the morning. And then when he gets home he goes out and he jogs. When he goes to the grocery store, now he's buying the light ranch dressing. And instead of buying Mountain Dew, he's buying LaCroix. And things seem to be going really well. He's losing weight. He loses 10 pounds like that. People say, oh, you look thinner. Your face, you look thinner in the face. But then the progress begins to stall. And he feels like he's not really making any progress anymore. He starts to feel a little discouraged. And then one day he's going through some old photos and he finds that picture of his younger self. 24 years old, on the beach, shirt off, tan, abs, showing. He wasn't even flexing, they were just there. Arms defined, good looking hair, every follicle in place. He could run a six minute mile. I mean, this was him in his glory days. 
when he sees this younger version of himself, it's like a wave, a tsunami of discouragement crashes down on top of him. And he asks himself, what am I even, what am I even doing here? Why am I even bothered? I'm, I'm never going to look like that again. I'm always going to have a dad bod. Now, I know that this is a little bit of a silly illustration. But one, it's too true. And two, I really do think it captures how in a tiny sense, how the Israelites must have felt as they were working on this temple. Even if we do build this temple, even if we get it all done, it's going to be half as glorious as the last temple. And as one pastor put it, who wants to dedicate their life's work to working on a second-rate temple? All of their time, all of their talent, all of their treasure. It's probably going to take them the rest of their lives to get this temple built. It's not like building the new Chick-fil-A. You see the ground getting torn up one day, and then three months later, it's up and going. This is a lifetime project. Who wants to dedicate their entire lives to something that's going to be half as good as the thing that was there before? And it's in response to this sentiment that the Lord speaks a word of encouragement. It's in response to this feeling that the Lord comes along in verse 4 and says, Be strong. Be strong, Zerubbabel, as you're leading these people. Be strong, Jehozadak. No, Joshua, son of Jehozadak. Yeah. Be strong, Israelites. Keep going. Trust me. This language is reminiscent of the language that God used when He spoke to the people when they entered the land the first time. In Joshua 1.9, the people had been traveling through the desert for 40 years. They were wearied and exhausted, and they were afraid. God, speaking to them through Joshua, says this, Be strong. Be strong. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And now as God's people are re-entering the land and trying to accomplish this nearly impossible thing, God reminds them again, be strong. Do not be discouraged. Trust in me. I am here with you. What might you be discouraged about this morning? What might you be discouraged about most mornings? What's the thing in your life that feels impossible? What's that thing in your life that you might be looking at and saying, you know, it's, it's never going to be as good as it once was? Your marriage? Your relationship with your kids? This church? I want to tell you that God wants to encourage you in your labors. He wants to tell you to not give up, to be strong. But Sean, I don't know how to be strong. I've been trying to be strong, and all I ever do is feel weak. How can I be strong? Well, that's a fantastic question. And I get it, and we're going to talk about how we can be strong later on in the sermon. But for now, I just need you to know that you do have to be strong. Because... Just like the Israelites, what we're about to see in the next point, the Lord has called us to work. In order for us to do what God has called us to do, we are going to have to work. In salvation, God does everything. But in sanctification, we have to work. Now, our work is empowered by His working, but it is still work nonetheless. If we want to fix our marriage, if we want to improve our relationships with our children, if we want to see this church thrive in the gospel, we're going to have to work. 
And sometimes our work will leave us feeling like that middle-aged man striving for his glory days. But God is telling us to be strong as we work. So, point number two. Keep working. You'll see this. It's just one word. It's one word in verse 4. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. Work. Not and work. Not let's get to work, just work. God doesn't intend for his encouragement to his people to just make them feel warm and fuzzy. He doesn't intend for this to be a sort of emotional comfort blanket for them. God wants His word of encouragement to move them to action, to encourage them in their labors, to keep them steadfast in their work. Do you guys remember physical science? You remember the concept of kinetic energy? Kinetic energy is, is the energy that something has when it's in motion. It's the reason why it's easier to get a big, heavy object, or excuse me, to keep a big, heavy object moving than it is to get the big, heavy object moving in the first place. Kinetic energy. Well, the Lord is working with kinetic energy here with His people. You remember how hard it was to get the Israelites going? You remember how we learned in chapter 1, the Lord tried to communicate to them through all these providential signs by sending plagues and economic disaster and all these things, and, and nothing really worked. And so the Lord sent the prophet Haggai to communicate to them and rebuke them. It was a big, long process. It was involved. But here, the Lord doesn't have to do all that. All He has to do is say, keep going, keep working. You're already doing it. Keep moving forward. The last couple of weeks, we've been, in light of the text, trying to consider our ways and consider the fruit of our ways and to see what part of our lives might need to change. What sorts of things we might need to repent of? What kind of work we might need to do in our lives? And maybe like the Israelites, after 30 days, or for you guys, two weeks, maybe you're already exhausted. Maybe you're already discouraged. Maybe that thing that you thought of when we talked about something that needs to change in our lives, maybe you're already ready to give up in fighting that fight. Don't give up. Keep working. Be strong. In your marriage, keep having those conversations. If you're single, keep striving for holiness and keep praying. Keep fighting for contentment. In the life of this church, keep working. Keep having conversations. Keep showing up. Keep volunteering. Keep praying for this body. In the life of this church, I, I think that we should mimic the Lord and use our words to not only correct, as we've seen here in chapter 1, but also to strengthen and encourage. If you were to kind of do a, a graph or a chart, if you were to maybe be a chart guy and do a chart of the amount of criticism and encouragement that comes out of your mouth, what might those percentages look like? 50-50? 80-20? Going which way, though? The Lord is very quick to correct and challenge and rebuke, but He's also an encourager. Brothers and sisters, we have to be encouragers as well. 
I can think of a few people in this congregation who are very good thinkers, but not very good encouragers. You know, people respond to criticism a lot better when they've received a bunch of encouragement from you along the way. In the specific context of Haggai, the Lord was calling His people to rebuild the temple. That was the work that He was calling them to. That was the work He told them to keep going, to keep doing. But what do you think God is calling us, His people, in the church to do today? What's the work, what's the labor that He's called us to? Well, if you remember, the temple is where God's Spirit dwelt with God's people. That was the place where God was most obviously displaying His glory. And that's also where God offered reconciliation to the nations. Well, friends, now that the temple no longer exists, the place where God is now offering reconciliation, the place where God is most obviously displaying His glory, the place where God is most obviously present with us here on earth is the church. The work that God is calling us to now is the work of the Great Commission, the work of building up His spiritual house. Now, it's true that God is the one who builds the church. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a part to play in that building. We are all called to take the gospel to the nations. To everyone and to anyone who hasn't heard the name of Jesus. You know, the Old Covenant, it was very come and see. Come and see, come and see. The people of God were meant to be a beacon of light to the nations that were supposed to attract the nations like moths to a flame. Hey, come look at us. Come look at God's people. Look how holy we are. Look how distinct and different we are. And that was meant to be attractional to the nations. But in the New Covenant, the beacon of salvation doesn't remain in a fixed location. We carry the flame of the Gospel out to the ends of the earth. This is the work that God is now calling us, His people, to carry out. And I know it's easy to grow weary in this work. We wouldn't be so weary if if we had more money. We wouldn't be so weary if we had more resources. We wouldn't be so weary if we had more people or organization or whatever it may be. Our sin can muddy the waters. We can... Our vision can get blurry. We lose sight of the end goal. We start to feel like we're never going to get there. We look at the mission that God has called us to as a church and we can begin to feel despair. But brothers and sisters, if God has called us to a work, and He has called us to a work, then He will give us everything that we need in order to accomplish the work that He has called us to. Just look at this church. Look at this little church in Decatur, Alabama. Consider all the things that God has done and is doing in the life of this church to carry out His mission. Isn't it obvious that He's building His church? Even right here among us? God really does use the foolish things to shame the wise. God promises us that He won't give us a task and then abandon us. And that leads us to point number three. God is faithful, and He is with us. Now, you remember earlier in the sermon where I told you I was going to come back and tell you how you could be strong, how you could be more encouraged in your work? Well, this this is that part of the sermon. Now, I'm cheating a little bit here. I'm combining two ideas. These could have been two separate points. I'm combining them into one point. 
God's faithfulness and God's presence. The reason why I'm combining these two things is because I think that they're inextricably linked in the language that God uses here, even in this text. I get this from the second half of verse 4 and from verse 5. So go to the very end of verse 4, starting with the word for. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. So, first of all, whenever you have the word for in your Bibles, you should just go ahead and circle it or underline it or highlight it or draw a star next to it or do whatever you can to draw attention to it because God is using it to explain something to you. So, how can we be strong? How can we keep going in our work? For... And then God tells us. The way that we can be strong is by trusting in God's faithfulness and trusting in His presence. Now what God does here is He kind of makes a sandwich in the text. He talks about His presence and then His faithfulness and then His presence again. I am with you according to the covenant. That's my faithfulness I made with you. And my spirit is present with you. It hasn't left you. And what's really cool here is that he points to the past, present, and future tenses in order to teach us about his faithfulness. So, let's look at each of them. In the past, in verse 5, we see that God wants the Israelites to ground their encouragement, not only in his current presence, not only in the here and now, but also in his faithfulness over the centuries. In verse 5, God says, listen, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt centuries ago, now, here, God is specifically quoting Exodus 29:45. He says in this covenant, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. When God brings this covenant up here in the book of Haggai, He's saying, remember, this promise that you're tr- trusting to believe now, this is not something new. This is a promise that I made to your great, 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 great grandparents. And I have been faithful to this people ever since those days. He's giving them a history lesson on His faithfulness. He's saying, I've been faithful even when these people were faithless. And my faithfulness is because of the covenant that I made with them. Now, it's been a while, but I hope that some people remember the pocket-sized definition of covenant that we've given in the church to help you remember what, what it means. The pocket-sized definition of covenant is this. It's a relationship grounded in a promise. A relationship grounded in a promise. And here God is saying, listen, a very long time ago, I formed a relationship with you. And that relationship is trustworthy because I, the God of the universe, promised to you. And God, His understanding of faithfulness is not the same thing as our understanding of faithfulness. God here is teaching the Israelites about His attribute of faithfulness, which is very different than theirs, their understanding of it. They understand faithfulness, they understand faithfulness, but they have a very short view of it. You know, they understand what it means to be faithful for a day, a week, a month, maybe a year, maybe ten years, but God's view of faithfulness spans the millennia, not decades. God's faithfulness is not temporary. God's faithfulness is not shaken by man. 
God's faithfulness isn't shaken by circumstances. God's faithfulness is grounded in the unchanging nature of who God is Himself. And in verse 5, God tells His people, listen, if you're having trouble trusting me now, look, look back. I've been faithful to this people ever since Egypt. Even when I've had every single reason to not be faithful. So shouldn't this spur the people on in their labors? Shouldn't the doctrine of God's covenant faithfulness strengthen their resolve as they work? Shouldn't the attribute of God's faithfulness be an encouragement to the universe? Excuse me, to them. The God of the universe has entered into relationship with His people. And that relationship is grounded in a promise with a God who does not break promises. Now, remember what we said earlier. The thing that God promises is that He will be present with His people, which takes us to the present tense. In verse 4, He says, I'm with you. Not only have I been with you, but I'm still with you. And then He adds this little refrain at the very end of that, at the end of verse 5. He says, My spirit remains in your midst. You remember, whenever you see something emphasized like this in the Bible, it's really important. Whenever you see something repeated, that's God's way of trying to highlight something. And here, God says something twice, back to back. I am with you. And brothers and sisters, Jesus is still with us. It's not like God made a covenant to be with His people this many thousands of years ago, but then he's, he's since changed his mind. God is still with us, individually and as a church. If you are in covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, you should know that he is still faithful to his covenant promise. And he is still with you. Now, it seems like God intends for his teaching about his present faithfulness his presence with us, his being with us, he intends for that to be something that kills fear in our life. Look at the very end of verse 5. Just two words. Right after my spirit remains in your midst, he says, fear not. And that leads us to our fourth point. Fear not. Not only should God's presence be an encouragement to us, His people. It should also be an antidote to our fear. As I was thinking about this point, I uh, opened up Google and I typed in how to conquer fear. How to conquer fear, right? I wanted to know, okay, it seems like God has a way for us to kill fear in our lives, but how does the world say we should conquer fear? And there were a lot of supposed solutions. You know, you have Freudian psychology, exposure therapy, essential oils, you know, a little ylang lang tea right behind your right ear. It'll do the trick. But before we talk more about this overcoming fears, we need to make a quick distinction. There's a difference between overcoming fear and coping with fear and killing fear. There's a difference between coping with fear and killing fear. Uh, some of you may know I'm terrified of heights. I mean, like, bad, bad terrified. 
If I went up on that balcony and just kind of leaned my head over, I would have like a little mini anxiety attack. I can't climb to the top of ladders. It's that bad. If you ever need help with your roof, call somebody else. So it may surprise you to know that I've jumped off of a thousand foot building. I have climbed a volcano with a very sharp grade, a very steep incline. I have jumped out of a perfectly good airplane on multiple occasions. One of the reasons why I've done this is because I don't like fear having mastery over me. I don't like it when something controls me like that. So I go head to head with it and try to conquer my fear. Unfortunately, it hasn't really worked. I'm still petrified of heights. But I've learned how to cope with my fears just a little bit better. I don't think that that's what God is after here. I don't think God wants us to just learn how to adjust to our fears or cope with our fears or live with our fears. I don't think that's what he wants the Israelites to think when he says, fear not. I think God wants to kill their fear. He wants to take the puddle of their fear and expose it to the blazing sun of his faithfulness and watch their fears evaporate into thin air. When you see, when you see the Bible, when you really survey the kind of the whole story of the Bible, you see that over and over again, God seems to communicate about his presence and fear together. He's constantly telling his people, don't be afraid. And when he tells them why they shouldn't be afraid, he says, well, because I'm with you. In Genesis 15, Abram is terrified on multiple occasions. And God says, fear not, Abram, for I am with you. To his son Isaac, again, he says the same thing, fear not, for I am with you. To Jacob? Yeah, same thing. Fear not, Jacob, for I am with you. In Exodus 3, Moses is afraid about going to Pharaoh. He says, who am I? Lord, that I should go to Pharaoh. The Lord tells him, Fear not, Moses, for I am with you. To Joshua, as we read earlier, as he was preparing to go into the promised land, the scouts had come back and reported, It's a land filled with giants. What are we going to do? We're just this ragtag bunch of nobodies coming from the desert. We've been wandering in the desert for 40 years. We're not going to be able to win this war with these people. The Lord says to him, don't be discouraged, don't be afraid, be strong, because I am with you. Here in today's text, we see the same thing. Don't be afraid, because I'm with you. Even in the Great Commission, the language is almost exactly the same. Now, you may not get it if you only ever read Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, like we typically do when we go, you know, I'll read John 3.16 all day, but 3.15 and 3.17, I don't know, you know. If you go before the Great Commission, you'll see that as Jesus reappears to his disciples, I'll let, I'll let Matthew say it. And when they, his disciples, saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And it's in response to this that Jesus gives the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's your work. Your work. You do this. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Be encouraged. Get to work. Because I am faithful and I am with you. And I will always be with you. What fear could you possibly be dealing with this morning? 
that can't be killed by the presence of God in your life? What thing in your life is so big and so scary that the God of the universe can't handle it? The God who hung the trillions of the stars in the heavens and knows them by name is with you. The God who spoke the universe into existence, the one who parted the seas and stops the sun in the sky at will, is with you. The God who raises kings and crushes empires is with you. The God who controls every particle and every atom in the known universe is with you. The God who raises dead men from the grave has made a promise to be with you. What could you possibly be going through right now that God can't handle? What could you be trying to do and trying to accomplish in your life right now that's too big and too much for God? I want to take a moment and be vulnerable with you. Because when we talk about stuff like this, it's very easy for a pastor to stand in his podium high and lifted up, literally lifted up, and to say, oh, here's a bunch of theological truth. You know, apply it to your lives. Apply it to your emotions. But I want you to know that pastoring this church has been one of the scariest things I've ever done. And if you know my life, that's saying something. Sometimes I feel confident in the Lord, and I feel 100% certain that He's with me. And that he's with all of us. But I often fall into fear. When I make a wrong decision, or I say the wrong thing, or I say the right thing in the wrong way, or I start thinking about finances, or the future of this church, or people leaving, or people coming, I can very easily fall into fear and anxiety. Like the Israelites, I jumped into this labor fully believing that the voice of the Lord had called me to be here and to put my hands to the plow. But how quickly my confidence turns into timidity. How quickly my faith turns into anxiety. This message is for me as much as it is for you. The Lord has called all of us in this church to a tremendous task. And as we work, we can be prone to despair, and I'm no exception. We can indulge in doubt. We can give in to fear. And so I'm standing right here with you, not above you, with you, fighting to believe all of the promises of God for my life and for this church. I'm fighting to believe that God is with me. The second and final reason why the Israelites should not fear is actually found in the future tense. Maybe you thought we forgot to talk about the future, but here in verses 6 through 9, the Lord talks about the future. And he says, This is the reason why you should not be afraid. Starting in verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, 
Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house, house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is God's promise to take the paltry labor and the meager resources of the Israelites and to turn it into something glorious. I could preach an entire sermon about how this applies to the life of our church, but I won't. This prophecy, like most prophecies in the Old Testament, has a dual fulfillment. Now, the Israelites at this time, as they're hearing this, they probably didn't understand exactly how this was going to happen. And they, if they would have lived a hundred years longer, they probably still not, would have not understood how this prophecy came to be fulfilled. But if they would have lived several hundred more years in the time of, until the time of Herod, well, then they would have very much seen this prophecy come, uh, become fulfilled. Because when Herod came, he came... And he came with all the money of Rome. And one of the things that Rome wanted to do to uh, build up a rapport with the peoples that they were conquering was to help them rebuild their temple. And so God shook the pockets of the Roman Empire out for the sake of the temple. And when Herod rebuilt the temple, he built it in glorious magnificence. The, the temple was truly greater in honor and splendor than the first temple. It was amazing and magnificent. But when Jesus, in his ministry, was talking about the temple, he seemed to think that there was going to be something bigger and better coming. As a matter of fact, he said that the temple would be destroyed. One of the things that he got in most trouble for was saying that if you rebuild this temple, I will build it again. Excuse me, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it again in three days. His apostle John understood what he meant. And in a vision that he had from the Lord in the book of Revelation, this is how he describes that temple. And I saw no temple in the city. No temple. I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, the Lamb. The ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, brothers and sisters, does not come in a physical building. It comes in the new heaven, in the new earth, where Jesus Christ himself, God the Father himself, will be the temple, where we will dwell with God forever. As I'm, as I'm writing this sermon this week, and I'm thinking about the tremendous work that the Lord has called us to in the life of this church, and how difficult it can be, but how encouraged I, I am by all of you and by God's word and by God's promises and by God's presence. I genuinely felt uh, a tinge of pity for many of my friends who don't know the Lord. And I don't mean that to be condescending at all. I mean, I genuinely felt pity. They toil away in their labors just like us, sometimes harder. And they have the same fears and discouragements and anxieties that we have. They get tired just like we do. What are they, what are they spending their lives for? 
They're getting up at four in the morning, going to bed at midnight. What are they spending their lives for? What are they dedicating their life's work to? Everything is going to crash and burn one day. You can make the greatest piece of art. You can build the biggest building in the world. You can be the greatest thinker that has ever lived, and none of it will matter in 10,000 years or, or 10 million years or 10 billion. It doesn't matter. It's all going to burn one day. And people are dedicating the entirety of their lives to a work that really doesn't matter if, it's a, if it doesn't matter to God. And when they do feel tired and discouraged and burn out and they're anxious and they need help and encouragement, where does it come from? Who do you turn to? Other people who are tired and burnt out just like you? Other people who don't really have any ultimate answers? But we can turn to Jesus. Because He was weak, we can be strong. Because He was broken, we can be encouraged. Because He took on the sin that should have separated us from God, we can rest in the promise that God will be with us and that we will never be separated from God again. Because Jesus was literally crushed to the earth by fear and anxiety in the Garden of Gethsemane as He considered facing the wrath of God on the cross, we never have to be afraid again. Because Jesus bore the curse of covenant unfaithfulness on the cross, we can trust that God is always going to keep us in faithful covenant with Himself. And in light of this glorious gospel, brothers and sisters, may we not live lives full of fear, but rather strength as we carry out the work that God has called us to. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to believe everything that we've heard this morning. As we go back out into the world, we will be crushed on every side and we will be tempted to despair. We will be prone to discouragement. But we know that because you love us and because you are faithful, you will be with us and we can be strong as we work. Amen. Amen.